Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you on this Lord's Day. We want to welcome again each of you who are here with us in person and also those of you who are joining us via our live stream today. It's good to be together. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Luke, chapter 14. Our passage today will be verses 1 through 24. Luke 14, 1 through 24. Always thankful that we can turn to God's Word and be encouraged by it to be strengthened, convicted, further conformed to the image of Christ. And it's good to be able to do that together today. Luke chapter 14, I want to begin reading in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then they took him and healed him and sent him away. He said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he, told a par- now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at that time for the banquet And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Would you instill it in us today? Would you help us to hear it and to be changed by it? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus went to a dinner party at a Pharisee's house. Sounds like the beginning of a joke. But it's not a joke. That's exactly where he is. He's at a dinner party invited by a ruler of the Pharisees. And this was quite a dinner to remember. I mean, you've maybe had those before, haven't you? Maybe it's Thanksgiving or some other occasion where you've been part of a a dinner party. And you know how those can sometimes go, especially if it's a large group or maybe lots of family that haven't seen each other in some time. Those awkward conversations that can sometimes cause a bit of tension at the table. Maybe it's the crazy uncle with the endless conspiracy theories. Maybe it's your cousin that often weighs in on some of the most controversial matters of the day. Or maybe you, maybe you're the odd man or odd woman out because you have the audacity 
to believe in and follow Jesus. Well, Jesus is at a dinner party and the conversation got quite tense very quickly. When we come to this passage this morning here in Luke 14, the scene is a dinner party. Context is a dinner party at a Pharisee's home with many who had gathered, including Jesus. And it's in this conversation at this dinner party that we see some very important contrasts. And that contrast, those contrasts that that begin to, to show not just the tension, but the difference between who Jesus is and was and was and is, say, was in that day and is today. The contrast between Jesus and his kingdom and that of the religious establishment of the day and those of the Pharisees. And Jesus is not a bit shy in exposing the differences between him and them, his kingdom and their kingdom, his values and the warped scale of values that the Pharisees had forced upon the people how these were directly opposed to one another in many ways. And so it's through this conversation and through the interaction that Jesus has and the parables that he, that he shares that we learn some very important things about the nature of the kingdom of God, but also he's exposing some very valid dangers about the religion of the day and the Pharisees and what all they had come to teach So I want us to walk through these four dangers, these four dangers that Jesus gives us through this conversation. And as we walk through these, we're going to make contrast of that what the Pharisees were believing and living and teaching versus that of what Jesus taught and modeled and implemented for the sake of his kingdom. So four dangers that we are being called to be aware of and be warned against, not only in his day, but our day as well. We see it specifically through the Pharisees. Four dangers. First danger is this. He warns us against a loveless religion. A loveless religion. You see that in the first six verses. Here we are, another Sabbath Another opportunity for a healing on the Sabbath, but the context is a bit different. Again, it's not a synagogue this time. It's a dinner party at the ruler of the Pharisees' home. As an aside, though, just think about that. Just think about where Jesus is. Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee. It's interesting to me to see that despite all the efforts that the Pharisees gave themselves to, to silence and oppose Jesus outright. We still see Jesus present, still engaging at the house even of a Pharisee. He knows he's in enemy territory and he's present. He's present. He's engaging. He is faithfully modeling what the kingdom of God is all about. Well, this Sabbath occasion is similar to many other occasions that we've seen. It's a Sabbath day, and here a man that has a medical problem emerges. He just materializes out of nowhere. He is a man with dropsy, a a, a condition that is the abnormal swelling of the body, probably related to some kind of um, heart issue where you've got the swelling of, of the legs and feet and ankles due to some kind of fluid retention. Well, this man had that condition, and it was obvious, probably a severe condition. Think about that. Think about, here's Jesus at a, a dinner party with Pharisees and other lawyers and other Pharisees there, we're, we're told later, and this man just materializes out of nowhere. You have to keep in mind that dinner parties are much different than what we're accustomed to today. The, the Middle Eastern culture was was radically different than this Western individualized culture that we live in today. If you were often at someone's house for an occasion, the, the windows would be open and doors would be open and people would be milling a by and kind of lingering around even outside the door, knowing that you're doing something 
inside. And so it could have been that situation, uh, but there seems to be something more at play here regarding this man. Notice the, the text tells us, one Sabbath when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. They were watching him carefully. Seems that we get the impression here that Jesus may have been set up not only was he invited over for dinner, it could have been, we're not told that directly, it could have been that the Pharisees now were aware of this man and what would Jesus do if this man just happened to come by at the same time he's here? It's the Sabbath. Is Jesus going to heal another person on the Sabbath? Well, regardless of whether or not it was a trap, we see Jesus is resolved to heal the man. He doesn't flinch. The man is healed and Jesus sends him on his way. But while that does happen and while this man's life is transformed for the better, I think it's important to see that the burden of these verses seems to be on exposing the reality of who the Pharisees truly were. You see, before Jesus heals the man, he addresses the lawyers and Pharisees in verse 3. Jesus responds to them saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They have no response. They're silent. We get the impression that this is one of those silences that's, that's not very cooperative. They're digging in. It was also a silence that, that exposed their lack of defense for such stringent Sabbath rules that they had added. In fact, he goes on in verse 5, after he heals the man, he turns to them and questions them again and says, which of you having a son, some translations may say donkey there, but son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day would not immediately pull him out? And it's a rhetorical question because they know every single one of them would. Again, he is pushing them to see the failure and the evil of their system that they had created. They had no defense of, of what they were teaching. He's pushing them, and they remain silent. And so through this Sabbath healing, Jesus shows us yet again the failure of the religious system of the Pharisees, and the radical difference between Jesus and the kingdom of God and the Pharisees and their little self-righteous kingdom that they had created. See, their system was one based on the law, but one that had missed the entire point of the law. A religion that evolved into a rigid, extra-biblical self-righteousness that had no capacity for care and love and mercy of others. It's as if Jesus is exposing them here in this, in this healing account, in this conversation, these questions that he poses to them, as if he's saying, can you not see, Pharisees, the bondage that you are truly in? Can you not see? How ridiculous it is that I'm even having to ask this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I mean, it's ridiculous that he's even asking that question. Just reveals how terribly wrong and messed up the religion that the Pharisees had become accustomed to was. Friends, it reminds us here again the stark contrast between what Jesus was about and what the Pharisees were about. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that is marked by mercy and compassion and grace and kindness and generosity. Jesus is, is on the Sabbath dining at the Pharisees' house, and, and we need to keep in mind about the Sabbath. Jesus does not come to just completely ignore and do away with the Sabbath. As if it's something that should be entirely rejected. He, he comes, though, to free it from these man-made rules and traditions. Sabbath was a gift from God for the good of man. We have this, this principle at play of work and rest. It was a good thing. 
But it had become now a great burden upon the people. And Jesus is speaking into that and and showing the foolishness of such rigid self-righteousness. And while he himself is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, the principle of Sabbath, I think, is still something we should enjoy. There still should be a day of each week when we set aside a time to rest and gather for corporate worship as we do. And yet it's on this Sabbath day that Jesus poses this question in a confrontation with the Pharisees to say, what? It's as if he's also saying, what better day than to magnify the goodness and kindness of God than the Sabbath day? It was a day where acts of mercy were not only well within reason, but should be encouraged. But the hearts of the Pharisees were hard. And not even a miracle could change where they were at this moment. Friends, I think it's just yet another reminder. We saw this weeks ago when the woman with the disabling spirit was healed on the Sabbath. We've seen it in other healing accounts as well. That we must be careful that we do not fall prey to rigid rules and traditions, extra-biblical things that keep us and limit us from showing compassion and kindness and love to others. This happens all the time. We, we should not be more committed to, to rules and regulations and rituals that the Bible has nothing about that keep us from caring well for people, that, that keep us from, from exhibiting kindness and generosity to others. This loveless religion that the Pharisees espoused was in direct conflict with what the kingdom of God was to be about. So it was a loveless religion. I'm going to move on to verses 7 through 11, and I want us to see a second danger Jesus confronts, and that is that of a prideful self-interest. As Jesus sits at the table, he's aware of all that's going on around him. He's aware of how all the guests were positioning themselves at the table. You see, it was a custom in this culture. It was also true in Roman culture and Greek culture that your place at the table reflected your social status. So wherever you sat in a, in a, in a setting like this kind of reflected how important you were socially. And so you have this dinner party and Jesus is sitting there and he's watching all of these people kind of maneuver and jockey their way around to, to try to get the, the seats of honor. So Jesus does what he often does when he wants to push back against something egregious and sinful. He tells a parable. I mean, I would have loved to have been at this dinner party as Jesus just engages. He sees all this going on and, well, let me tell you this parable. Well, that's ridiculous. Let me tell you this parable. And so he begins with the parable of the wedding feast. Verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And he, and he, he pushes here. He confronts them in their pride. So this parable is about those who were invited to a wedding banquet. And he says, imagine going to a wedding banquet and you decide to sit down in a a seat of honor. Maybe it's the banquet after the wedding ceremony in our context. Maybe you say, okay, waiting for the wedding party to come in. So I'm going to sit at this table and it's marked parents of the bride. Pretty bold. So you have a seat there. And then not too long, those who are helping host the party come in and say, excuse me, you're going to have to move. It's reserved for for, for the parents of the bride. So you're going to have to get up. How about that table over in the corner? It would be an embarrassment. Now, I know it sounds ridiculous that any of us would do that kind of thing, but this is kind of the picture you get here of of those who are wanting to be seen, wanting to be known as important, and, and wanting to capture people's attention. Jesus says, rather, you should choose the lowest place. For better to start out low and be moved up than to choose the highest place and to be moved low. 
I think this parable calls to mind the proverb. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 6 and 7, we read there, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of the noble. Jesus is there and he looks around and he sees nothing but pride oozing out of all that were at this dinner party. He's not against dinner parties. In fact, Jesus loved a good party. He's just put off by how the people were acting. And so he addresses what he sees there as a warning and as an exhortation. And then he gets to the application in verse 11. It says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice this language here of will be humbled and will be exalted. This is, these are verbs that are describing the activity of God. Specifically, the divine activity at the last judgment. You, you know, you read a parable like this and say, well, this is, this is, can't imagine this happening. This, is it that big of a deal about where you sit at a wedding banquet? I mean, is Jesus really, like, is that a big deal? Well, this matter about seats at a dinner table in this parable had radical implication about seats at another table. You see, pride is an issue that will keep us all from the most important banquet there is. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble. This is language of judgment. Listen, the Bible speaks to this. God hates pride. He hates pride. Pride is something that's always easier to see in others, isn't it? Not ourselves. Especially when we live in a day and time when cultural customs and, and even others help fame, fan the flames of pride in us. And the application that Jesus draws from this parable in verse 11 is he's saying, listen, self-promotion, self-centered idolatry, pride is something that will lead to a disastrous ending for you. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we all have the great joy of looking forward to a banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb we're told about in Revelation chapter 19. When all the redeemed, all of God's chosen will be gathered there on that great day and will join Jesus, the host, for this great and glorious feast. And brothers and sisters, I guarantee you at that moment, when you're at that banquet and you're at that feast, you and I will not be moving about to try to get a better seat of honor at that table. You see, our attitude on that day will be, how in the world did I even get an invitation and seat at the table? Why was I an invited guest to this when I deserved to be judged and cast out? I, I, did, I didn't do anything to deserve to be at this table, at this banquet. And yet God in his kindness and grace has given me the opportunity to be gathered. Brothers and sisters, it is that attitude that ought to mark us today before we even get to that banquet. That we would realize just how gracious God has been to us and that we would be humbled. That humility is a characteristic of, of God's people, not just in that day, but today. Humility ought to be something that regularly marks our lives. Listen, I know that we all crave attention and affirmation, and, and maybe you don't think you do, but in some ways, all of us down deep like to be seen. We enjoy being acknowledged by others. 
We, we fuel our pride in a variety of different ways. It looks different in different people's lives. But listen, that selfish tendency, that, that, that tendency to, to cultivate and incubate that pride that's in our hearts will negatively impact every single time your walk with Jesus. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of humility. The way to be exalted is to be humbled. Friends, Jesus didn't just preach this. He modeled it. Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi said, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And then Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, He's humbled himself. Look, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we find in the ministry of Jesus is a willingness to humble himself, and through that humility, he is exalted. And by the way, it's through his humility that he accomplishes everything you and I needed to be saved from our sin. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross, the most humiliating way to die, exposed for all to see. And he died on the cross to bear the guilt and burden and shame that we all deserve, the judgment that we deserve because of our own sin. Jesus took upon himself in a humble fashion. And now he's exalted as he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's promised to come again. Friend, it's through this humble act of obedience that our redemption is made secure. And so he calls us he calls us to put off a prideful self-interest and to embrace a life of humility, a life of grace. He's warning us here. He's warning these Pharisees here in this, in this passage through this parable of the wedding feast saying, listen, the way to be exalted is not how you're doing it. Quit trying to make a name for yourself in this world. Quit trying to, to, to manipulate your way in this life to try to make a name for yourself. Listen, the only one you should care about that thinks one thing about you is God. You're going to stand before him one day and give account of your life. You're not going to stand before your co-workers or other family members or people that you're trying to impress in this world. You're not going to stand before them. You're going to stand before a holy and righteous God and give account of who you are. And we should be humbled. We should be humbled by the fact that God has given us grace and has invited us to the supper. And that should mark our lives as we seek to live out a life of obedience and faith. Danger number three. An insulated partiality. Verse 12. So he's spoken in generalities at this point to the people that were present. And now he has a, a word for the man who had invited him, the ruler of the Pharisee. Again, just imagine Jesus is kind of taking over the conversation here and he's just kind of speaking to everyone in general. And now he's like, oh, and, and, and you, sir. When you give a dinner or a banquet like this, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. 
lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For I tell you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So basically, after he calls out most of the people at the wedding part, or at the, at, the, at the banquet, at the dinner, he just goes in full throttle and, and addresses the host. Listen, this is, this is a pathetic dinner party. He gives him a, a, a word on what hospitality ought to look like. And it's an important word that confronted their hypocrisy and their pride. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine being invited to a dinner with a group of people and then you speaking up to the host and saying, you know, th- this, is, this is a bad guest list. You shouldn't invo- invite people like us. You should invite the poor, the lame, the, the blind. That's exactly what Jesus does. Now listen, friends, he's obviously not forbidding us to ever dine with friends and family. That's going to be a normal part of our life. He's simply saying, don't limit your guest list to those who you want to impress or who can in some way repay you back. Don't limit your guest list to those who would expect to be with you. Again, the kingdom of God presents a different ethic in the kingdom of Jesus, this, is, this, this, this approach to impressing others and re- I scratch your back, you scratch mine, is not the norm. His kingdom is different. And one of the ways that this kingdom is manifest in this world is how we view and treat others, especially the marginalized and those who are disadvantaged and invisible to our society. See, the Pharisees had a tendency to cater to the wealthy wonder why. Either those they wanted to impress or those who were like them. Friends, God's blessings do not come by, come to those trying to impress others, trying to keep a name for yourself in this world. It comes by serving those who you know can never repay you. kingdom of God is a kingdom that is impartial. It doesn't limit the guest list. It opens it broadly. You can compare this parable to commands that God had given his people even back in Deuteronomy chapter 16 where there's a variety of different occasions. In that case, it's talking about the Feast of Weeks these different festivals and and how God would speak to them about these different festivals and say, when you invite, don't forget about the sojourner and the one who's outside of Israel. Invite them too. Friends, I don't know about you, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is something I often need to hear. I imagine that had any of us been privileged enough to be able to walk with Jesus in his earthly ministry, there would have been countless times when he had, would, would, would have stopped and ministered to someone we never saw. Constant theme throughout the Gospel of Luke is how Jesus prioritized the lowly, the marginalized, the poor, those whose society would cast aside. Friend, I would just ask you today, what does your guest list look like? In general? Who are those you find it easy to overlook and ignore. And just ask yourself, would Jesus have me ignore them? Would he have you seek a name for yourself by surrounding yourself only with those who are like you and those who can approve you and affirm you and repay you? 
Or would he have you seek to honor his name by serving others who can't repay you? Brothers and sisters, read the Gospels. It's a challenge to me. When I read the Gospels and I, and I see where Jesus spent a bulk of his time, and I, and I consider the people, the kinds of people that Jesus served and, and, and navigated towards, it is an indictment oftentimes upon my own life, and it's an indictment oftentimes upon the American church. We're too often eager to see what people can contribute. How, how can they benefit my life and, and make me look good? Instead of how can I serve them in Jesus' name? Brothers and sisters, if we are not careful, we can find it all too easy to insulate ourselves and miss opportunities to serve others who are in need. I like passages like this because they are these divine pushes to push us out of our insulated, comfort, comfortable environments so that we begin to see others through God's eyes and not our own. And notice even how Jesus uses theology as an, as an encouragement to do this. He says you should invite these, include these kinds of people, the, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. These are people who are helpless. They can't do anything for themselves. Love these people. They can't repay you. You shouldn't expect it, but you will be repaid when at the resurrection of the just. God will see that and he will repay you in some way. He will reward you for loving people in this way. Friends, this insulated partiality is often something that is present in our lives and we're not aware of. And I pray that God would use passages like these to to provoke and to push us in ways that may not be comfortable. But warning number four. Not only does he say the third danger is an ins insulated partiality, he says there's this danger of a costly rejection. And you get to the verse 15. One of those who were at the table, reclined at table with him, heard these things and said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I don't know, maybe this guy was just trying to break the awkward silence in the room. It was pretty hard things Jesus has just said. Let me just say something. I think obviously this person is responding to Jesus and he's wanting him to speak further to the matter. Maybe, maybe it's a challenge He's challenging Jesus to further express his views about this kingdom. Or maybe he's, he's just nervous, doesn't know what else to say, who knows. But, but Jesus says to him, let me tell you about the ones who will eat bread in the kingdom. And he gives this additional parable about another banquet. And this banquet that... Jesus uses in the parable is, is really a, a picture of that great banquet that I spoke of from Revelation 19. By the way, it was also prophesied in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. In fact, if you go back and, and read that, let me just read it from Isaiah. This is Isaiah looking forward to the end. This is what Isaiah prophesies. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of marrow, and aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice 
in his salvation. Isaiah says there's a day that's coming that's going to be like that. And Revelation 19 speaks about this great banquet, this great feast that we will all be gathered at. And as Jesus tells this parable, he is alluding to that day. This parable, we're told a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. You need to understand one of the things about great banquets and, and, and parties and celebrations such as these in ancient times, you would often receive a double invitation. An invitation would go out early announcing the event details in order to secure your Attendance, and then on the day of, oftentimes a second invitation will go out to say, the time is ready, come to the event. But you see here as the people who had been previously invited receive the first invitation, they don't seem all that interested. They make excuses. Let me try to contextualize this for our day. Imagine a scene where you're hosting a big dinner. People arrive, they're enjoying conversation, food's being prepared, and then when you say, okay, everyone come in and come and gather around the table, it's time to eat. One by one, all of the people begin to leave saying, hey, I've got a kid's game to get to. There's a new series on Netflix. I, I, it starts today, I just gotta go watch it. I've gotta go home and mow the yard before it gets dark. I mean. That would just be odd. It would show a great disregard and disrespect for the person that had invited you to enjoy this feast. And here in this parable, these excuses that are given, I bought a field, I've got an ox, I just got married, all of these excuses, I can't make it, please excuse me show how they despise the host's invitation. No one in Jewish culture would have dreamed of treating a host like this. They were known for their hospitality. They were known for how welcoming and hospitable they were. And to treat someone like this would be horrific. And yet, Jesus' point is that is exactly how the Jewish people, specifically the Pharisees, had responded to Jesus. He's using the parable to show the people that this dinner party, that they are the ones doing this very thing. But friends, such an arrogant rejection of Jesus is not limited to first century Israel. We know that an invitation to this great banquet has gone out. And it continues to go out. And there are many, many, plenty of excuses as to why they can't make it. Friend, I just ask you, in light of this invitation that Jesus gives, we saw it last week through this narrow door, this, this invitation that's gone out to the world to, to come in and to enjoy the, the kingdom of God and to enjoy the feast that he is preparing for you as his people. Will you be there? This feast that Isaiah prophesies, the feast that Revelation promises, will you be there? Or do you have something better going on? You have something more important to attend to. You see, brothers and sisters, participation in the kingdom of God is not possible from a distance. It requires your presence and your participation. Quickly, as we conclude, I want you to notice two things about this parable regarding God's grace. First of all, we see that grace is invincible. Notice how the rejection of the invitation did not cancel the banquet. Excuses become coming in. Verse 18, the first said about a field, 
Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I've got to go examine them. Another said, I've married a wife. I can't come. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to the master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. There they are again. The servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and there is still room. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. This party shall go on. God's grace is invincible in this world and you can receive or reject, whatever, but his grace will prevail and there will be people at the table. His house will be full and a celebration will go on. With or without you. And the invitation remains open. There are many who've refused it, but the invitation has gone out and the master is still filling the room. The meal is being prepared and the guests are coming. Will you be there? Friend, if you're thinking today, I just don't know. I don't know if I'll be there or not. We would just urge you to consider all that's being said here and take you back to what Jesus did as he humbled himself and as he became a man and as he died upon the cross. Understand that he did this to secure your place at the table. He died to forgive you of your sins. He was raised from the dead three days later to show his victory over sin and death once and for all. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us today and he's promised to come again and get you to the table. Friend, if you would just believe that and turn from your sin and put your hope in that, put your hope in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You'll be forgiven of your sin and you'll be welcome. Jesus is welcoming people to his banquets. Don't provide him another excuse as to why you can't be there. His grace is invincible and his grace is incredible. Even after many of the poor, the lame, the blind had filled the empty seats, there was room for more. And friends, we know that the house is yet to be filled. The invitation remains open. The meal is being prepared. Think about this, this grace. If you were among those who were poor, crippled, blind, and lame, just completely cast aside in society, This news, this invitation would sound too good to be true. This noble person in this great palace with this great banquet is inviting me? I don't know if I believe it. He's inviting me? I have nothing to give him. I have nothing to offer. I have no reason for him to invite me. That's what makes grace so incredible, friends. None of us, none of us have reason to give God any, any, any reason to invite us to his banquet. It is all of grace, all of it. The invitation, your seat at the table is all of grace. Incredible grace. I hope we see that. God's house will be filled. Well, Jesus at this dinner had some hard conversation. He boldly distinguished between his kingdom and whatever the Pharisees represented. He showed how his kingdom is one that's marked by love, humility, impartiality, and ultimately celebration in contrast to all of their self-righteous ways. Friend, the celebration that he points us to through this last parable will be that great future banquet when we will all be gathered. I want to read from that passage in Revelation 19 as we close with our time together this morning. John writes, then I heard what seemed in verse 6, Revelation 19 verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude A great multitude. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. They're true words, they're amazing words. Blessed are those who are invited and blessed are those who come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word and reminder through these teachings of Jesus and his ministry to others. Pray, Father, that you would use this word to encourage us today, to exhort us, to clarify even in our own hearts and lives what your kingdom is about. Father, as those who have been invited guests, those of us who have responded to the invitation, those of us who have joyfully and gladly embraced this, this great opportunity that you give, Father, we pray that that would encourage us and motivate us and thrill us that we would be living out lives of joy and contentment and hope. Father, would you work in us these things that you call us to do, to reflect, to be like people who love, people who are humble, people who are impartial, and people who are grateful for the great feast that awaits us. And Father, for those who have yet to respond to your invitation, Lord, would you work in their hearts today? Those in this room, those who may be watching, Father, may be uncertain of whether or not they have responded. Maybe there are those that are clearly convicted this morning that they've been giving excuses. Father, would you eliminate these excuses and would you bring them to yourself today in glorious fashion? Father, we thank you most of all for Jesus. We thank you that he said these hard things and that we can learn from them. Thank you, Lord, that he is the one who's going to be the great host of this great banquet that we will enjoy together for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.